Well, the Christian life is, is a really hard thing. It's, it's a difficult life. Suffering is promised. It's baked in to the Christian life. And one of the important questions we need to ask is, what is to sustain us through the suffering that we will inevitably face in this life? How are we to get along in that suffering? And there's answers to that. Uh, things like the fellowship of the saints, being connected and tied to the body of Christ, being involved in a church and the accountability of others, the encouragement of others is something that helps sustain us through suffering. The preaching of the word is another thing that helps to sustain us. The, the administration and receiving the, the sacraments are things that sustain us in the midst of our suffering. But here's another thing. A clear vision of the end, a picture of where all of this is heading is so important as we try to get along in the midst of our suffering. One, one, wait, one word that we used to describe it is hope, right? You can think of hope as like your faith directed to the future. That's what hope is. It's your faith directed towards the future. And it's crucial for this life of faith that we live in. We must have a, a, a vision, an understanding of the end. But here's the thing. We don't know everything about how it's going to end. I was watching the Truman show this, this past week. And Truman, this character in this TV show that he, he's unbeknownst to him. He's a part of this show. And people have these little pins that, that say, how's it going to end? It's kind of the question we all have. How's it going to end? When's it going to end? Three years? Three decades? Three weeks? When's it going to end for me? How's it going to end? Where is all of this heading? There's some mystery surrounding that. Jesus, doesn't, Jesus himself doesn't know when it's going to end, at least the hour that the Father has appointed. But we do know some things. And here's the thing. This passage this morning that we just read, this long portion of Scripture, gives us a clear picture of what's going to happen at the end. So we're going we're gonna to explore that. It's really important that we get. I mean, think, think about this. We know this. There, there are high school athletes across the, the state that are enduring these grueling workouts. They're suffering. And what, what, what's kind of driving them in the midst of that suffering? It's a vision of a state championship in the fall or the winter or the spring. Right? The musician that's going through the lessons and kind of just the, the suffering of, of rote memorization. They've got a vision of, of what it might be like to be able to play the piano. Right? It's a vision of the end that helps us sustain us in the midst of our suffering. And so here in this passage this morning, our hope is articulated. Three things specifically that we're going to look at or that we're going to see. In the end, those who are high will be brought low. Those who are low will be lifted. And then the final thing, the third and final thing, is that our suffering will be forgotten amidst God's blessings. So those who are high will be brought low. Those who are low will be lifted. And our suffering will be forgotten amidst God's blessings. Now, before we get into that, we need to kind of provide a little recap. It's been over a month since we've been in, in the book of Genesis looking at the life of Joseph. And so a recap is in order. Uh, the Genesis is very clear that the world is not the way it's supposed to be. We all know that. I think it's kind of a universal. There's maybe one thing we agree upon as human beings. Things aren't quite right. Something's off. Something's wrong. Something's wrong with the world. Something's wrong with us. 
And of course, the Bible says that there's a word for it, and, and Chris referred to it. It's, it's, it's this concept that's very helpful of sin. That's what's gone wrong. And if you remember early on, the people of the world determined to kind of deal with the fear and, and, and the pride that this sin creates in our hearts. And they did what? Do you remember what they did in Genesis chapter 11? They built a tower to the heavens, and they did it through kind of might and good organization, and planning, and technology, all of those things, pooling their resources, pooling their strength, building a tower to heaven. And God nixed the plan. He condemned the plan. And in the very next chapter, chapter 12, he calls Abraham and really provides the same things that the people of Babel were seeking. He says, but God says, I'm going to provide it. I'm going to give you a name. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you. You're going to be mine. And I will care for you and provide for you. And the blessings of the whole world, the salvation of the whole world, will come through your family. That's the promise. So this family of faith, Abraham, who gives birth miraculously, Abraham and Sarah give birth to Isaac, who again, miraculously and through prayer, gives birth to Jacob and Esau. And then Jacob marries two of his cousins, Rachel and Leah, and it's, it's kind of a mess. They have many children. And we're now looking at, that gener- at Jacob's children, focusing in particular on Joseph. And Joseph, was, he was the favorite son of Jacob. And, you know, one of the reasons is because Jacob, came, or Jake, I'm sorry, Joseph was the favorite son of Jacob. And, and, and one of the reasons Jacob loved Joseph so much is because Joseph was the son of, of Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel. And Joseph was a young one. Just like Jacob, right? The young underdog, kind of the little whippersnapper of the family. He had a heart, heart for Joseph because of that. And so he extends his love to Joseph, disregarding his other brothers. Now, that's a recipe for sibling disaster and family disaster, and we see that take place. Jacob gives Joseph, as represented by the, the coat of many colors, it, it, was, it represented really the inheritance that Joseph was to receive, that Joseph was to become the main inheritor of, of all the brothers. And then there's the dreams. Do you remember the dreams? Joseph has two dreams. I'll, I'll only explain one of them. They mean the same thing, much like the story this morning. They mean the same thing. But Joseph had the, has these dreams where Uh, 11 stars, he has 11 brothers, right? 11 stars and the sun and the moon are all bowing to him. And he starts sharing these dreams with his brothers. Like, you know, hey guys, I got this dream. Help me figure this thing out. What do you think this means? And they, it drives them crazy. He has this dream that somehow his brothers will bow to him. His family will bow to him. How's it going to happen? Well, his brothers say, we're going to keep this from happening. Let's kill our brother. And so they, they throw him in a pit. And then they decide, let's not kill him. It's a little severe. Let's sell him as a slave. And so they do. And, you know, they say, we'll see what becomes of those dreams now, right? Joseph's out of the picture. And remember what they do to their father? They take a dead goat, and they take its blood, and they take Joseph's beautiful coat, and they go and they deceive their father, just like their father deceived his father with with his brother's cloak and a dead goat. And they deceive him. And so Jacob believes that his precious Joseph is is dead. The brothers believe that they've taken care of this little punk brother that they have, the problem. 
And Joseph has been, for more than a decade, in Egypt as a slave. And now, for about 12 years, he's been a prisoner in Egypt. Last time we met, there was a cupbearer and a a baker that were stuck in the prison. And Joseph interpreted their dreams, the cupbearer's dream. dream. And, and, And Joseph said, when you get out of here, I didn't do anything. When you get out of here, tell the Pharaoh, tell somebody in power my story just so I can get out of here. Well, the cupbearer forgot about him. And so you can imagine Joseph is at a low point. For two years, the cupbearer has been gone. He's he's forgotten about, but God hasn't forgotten about him. And so that's where we pick up the story this morning. So again, this passage is giving us a picture of the end. And and the first point is that what we're going to see happen in the end, is that the high are brought low. And we see this here with Pharaoh. He, he's the king of the world. Um, the king of the world. He's, he's the most powerful man in the world. Egypt is the most powerful uh, nation in, in the known world. And, and Pharaoh is the king of it. And he has these dreams, and they're wrecking him. And here's the dreams. One, in one dream, these really gorgeous, well-fed, muscular cattle, seven of them, emerged from the Nile to be followed by seven ugly, bony, scrawny cows that then gobble up the healthy cows. Okay, and then, he, and then he wakes up, and then he has another dream. Ears of grain, seven, healthy, plump, followed by seven withered ears of, of grain, and they gobble up the healthy ears of grain. So he wakes up, and he's wrecked by these dreams, and it makes sense because it, it was, so the Pharaoh was a god, right? That it, was believed, it, he, it was believed that he was a god. And the gods communicated to each other through dreams. So this is a message from the gods. And Pharaoh, he, he doesn't know what it means, but he knows it's ominous. It doesn't feel good. He's just got this troubled spirit about him. And look at what he said. This is how he's handling it. Look at verse 7 and 8. So Pharaoh wakes up, behold, it was a dream, and his spirit was troubled, right? And the reason his spirit is troubled is because he's a king. He's he's the man with the plan. He's an administrator, right? He's read David Allen's Getting Things Done, and he's just, you know, getting things done in the kingdom of Egypt. He's got vision for Egypt, and he's got a plan for how to get there. It's going to happen through careful planning and organization and strategy and muscle and hard work and mobilizing the people. That's how he's going to make Egypt great, okay? He's large and in charge, and all of a sudden, in this dream, he bumps up against reality. He bumps up against the fact that he's not in charge, that there are things outside of him that are outside of his control, that not only is he powerless to understand what this dream means, but he, much less can he do anything about it. He's powerless to fix the situation. And he knows, at the very least, that this thing is an ominous dream. It, it, something bad is happening. And so he does what, what many of us do when we have this unsettled sense that something is wrong. We look to the experts. Right? And so verses 8, he, he sent and he calls the magicians of, of Egypt and all of its wise men, and he told them their, his dreams, but, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. They have no answers. The experts don't have any answers. Kind of the magicians, like the scientists of the day, 
the, the philosophers of the day, they, they don't have the answer. And think about this. We saw this in the early stages. I remember reading this in the early stages of the Russian invasion. There was a lot of speculation that Putin had no idea what was going on in the world, in the war itself, because his generals would only report the good news to him. They would give him the most rosy picture of what was happening. And so it is with leaders oftentimes, right? The reports are good news. The news that he gets is very curated and, and, and glowing. And all of a sudden, he's got this bad news that he can't deal with. Listen to what one um, uh, commentator says, Walter Brueggemann says this. This dream for Pharaoh is like a thief. It has robbed the king of his confidence, of his control, and finally of his expected future. The power of this age is rendered helpless before the inscrutable purposes of God. The power of this age is rendered helpless before the inscrutable purposes of God. I mean, think about Egypt. Egypt epitomizes the the, the powers of this age. It is an economic, military, technological power hub. It is a food production machine, Egypt is. The whole world looks to Egypt for its life and sustenance. And all of a sudden, there's a big shadow of doubt cast over all of that. Pharaoh knows it, but he doesn't know how, he doesn't know what's happening. And maybe, you know, maybe you have bumped up against reality too. Like the Pharaoh, maybe life has dealt you a difficult blow and you're troubled. You're anxious, you have the sense of anxiousness, but you don't even, you can't put your finger on what it is. You're just unsettled. What's going on? When that happens, it's an invitation to turn to your creator, to turn to God, to turn from your strength and turn to God, to turn from your kind of highly controlled and carefully planned little, little kingdom and turn to the Lord in faith. Because any life built outside of God is a house of cards. And that's what Pharaoh is feeling right now. He's got this eerie suspicion that the whole Egypt project is a house of cards that it will not be able to survive this situation. So how does, this, how does this moment here anticipate the end? Because Pharaoh, who is high and mighty and in charge, has been brought low, and he's troubled. And this is a promise for all those who lean into their own strength and might in this life. Right? Those who are strong will become weak and powerless. And Christ put it like this in the New Testament. He says, the last will be first, And the first, those who are high, will be brought low. The first will be last. Jesus put it that way. Pharaoh is desperate. He's troubled. He has nowhere to go. And oddly, his salvation emerges not from the halls of power, not from the power brokers of the age, not the magicians, not the philosophers, but it emerges from the pit, from the prison. That's where his answer is going to come. And that brings us to our next point. Uh, Those who are low will be lifted. Look at what happens, just happens to happen, verse 9. Just a a, a coincidence. It says, verse 9, Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. 
when Pharaoh was angry, I remember this time, you were angry, Pharaoh, and, and angry with me, and you put me and the baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard. We had this dream, and there was this Hebrew guy that was there, a servant of the captain of the guard, and he interpreted the dreams for us. And it came, it came to fruition. It came true. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Maybe he can help. This is, again, two years from the time the cupbearer left. He just happens to remember. Right? Another thing that's operating in this Joseph story, um, God is speaking primarily through dreams, and he's also working through providence. You see all these people just happen to do certain things. And the whole story just kind of hinges on, on happenstance, it seems. But it's actually God's providence working this story out, weaving this story out. So Joseph is cleaned up. He's unkempt. I mean, he's a prisoner for more than a decade. He looks like Tom Hanks coming off the island. And he comes up and they shave him like a good Egyptian, you know, body shaved, head shaved, everything shaved. And he's cleaned up and he goes before the Pharaoh. And the Pharaoh says, you have power to interpret dreams. And it's very interesting. So quickly, he he jumps in. Look at verse 16. It's like, it's almost like he's interrupting the Pharaoh. He says, it's not in me. It's not in me. Verse 16, God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. This power is not mine. And I want you to notice something that's happened to Joseph. The last time we saw Joseph way back at the beginning, not the last time, but at the beginning, remember Joseph, how he flaunt those dreams before his brothers? Look at me, I'm I'm a dreamer. I got these dreams, I got this. And he would flaunt them. Here here he's so quick to deflect. His, his, time, his suffering, his time as a slave, his time in prison, it has produced a humility in Joseph's heart. He's quick to point out that he is, he's been gifted by God. It's not him. It's a gift of God. But not only is he humble, he's also confident. He says, I'm, I'll tell you what the dream means. I do have, God has indeed gifted me, and I can answer what this dream means. And this is the fruit of faith. It produces in us a a humility and at the same time a confidence. Joseph is standing before the king of the world and is interrupting him. Right? He's humble. He's confident. And so Pharaoh tells him the dream and Joseph interprets the dream. And he says this. "The The dreams are the same. The seven plump cows and the seven ears of grain represent seven years of plenty. Those years of plenty and abundance will be followed by seven years of famine. And what we must do to survive the famine is to prepare. This is a warning. There's an opportunity to prepare. And look at what he says, verse 32. The doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God. God will shortly bring it about. So it's doubled. It's, it's, it's kind of like a stamp of validation. Both dreams, boom, this thing's going to happen. It's fixed. And this is how God's ways are. They're fixed. You can't change them. Pharaoh can apply all the power, all the might, but the dream is fixed. It's inevitable. And so it is with God's will. It's fixed. It's, it's, God is sovereign. He's king. The thing is fixed, right? Now, you hear that, and you think, oh, okay, well, then if, if everything's fixed, then I put my life on cruise control. We just sort of sit back and let God's will work itself out. That's actually not what happens. 
You know, is, is Egypt just going to sit like bumps on a log, just kind of fretting about what's coming? It's going to happen. We can't do anything about it. No, look at, what, look at what Joseph says, verse 33. Look at verse 33. He says, let's get to work. Joseph says, okay, Pharaoh, select. Here's what we need to do. We need to select a discerning and wise man, set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land, taking one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. Let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through famine. Okay? Now, here comes the shocker. Are you ready? Look at what happens here. Look at verse 37. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. Pharaoh said to his servant, Can we find a man like this in whom the Spirit of God is? And the Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house. And all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne, just to be clear, (laughs) I'm still king. Uh, I'm still greater than you. But I have set over you all the land of Egypt. And and then the Pharaoh takes his signet from his hand and he puts it on Joseph's hand. He clothes him in the king's garments and he puts a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they call out, bow the knee. This is the the dream Joseph had back in his hometown, right? It's actually happening. Not just his brothers and his mom and his dad. The whole world is bowing to Joseph. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up a hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zephanath, Peneah. He gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. So incredible. I'm, I'm, tr- I'm struggling to try to like make sense of this, and I don't know if this is helpful, but here's an example. Um, A Mexican teenage boy, against his will, is shipped to the U.S. in a truck. He finds himself in, I don't know, Ohio, and he works. He's actually not getting paid. He's, he's, He's really a slave is what it amounts to. And in the course of his time as a slave, he is thrown for something he did not do, into prison. And a decade late, more than a decade later, he emerges from prison. He finds himself in the Oval Office, and he is functionally making decisions for the President of the United States. He's the, he's the guy in charge. He's in charge not just of, of the country, but because of the strength of the country, he's kind of in charge of the whole world. That's what's just happened to Joseph. That's the breathtaking, stunning turn of events. For Joseph. And here's the thing. It's a picture of the end. It's a picture of what we're promised. 
It's a picture of where all of history is moving, that there's going to become this great inversion of history where the high are brought low and the low are lifted up. The low are bump up against their limits, bump up against the consequences of life lived apart from God, and they're brought low. And those who are low are lifted up. Those who the Lord has set his love on lifts them up. That's our dream. That's God's word to us, Christ's people, that he will lift us up. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, Paul says that Christ is is ruling and reigning over all things, and his church, the body, somehow completes Christ in that rule over all things, that we co-reign with Christ. Much like Joseph is co-reigning with the Pharaoh, we, are, we will co-reign with Christ over all creation, not over a famished land, but over the new creation, a lavish land, right? That's the promise. That's, that's a picture of the end. And it's fixed. It's fixed. It's also fixed that the high, those who have lived their lives apart from God's law and apart from God's care and apart from God's love, um, judgment will, will come to them. That's the promise of the scriptures. It's spoken of, of quite a bit. Our, our kind of, you know, we modern folk kind of recoil a bit against that, but it's pretty clear. Judgment is coming. That's fixed. Um, we may not like that. I'm sure, just like the people in Egypt, they didn't like the fact that a, that a, famine, a serious famine was going to come that was going to wreak havoc on the world. But there, it's a call to action, right? What are, what are you going to do? If God's judgment is coming, what are you going to do? There's an invitation to turn to him in faith, to find life and salvation. Healing opened up for you by turning to him and finding uh, the forgiveness of sins. You can experience the breathtaking turn of events that Joseph experienced. Right? I mean, think, think of the, about the parallels. Joseph was dead. I mean, he was left for dead, right? We're dead in our sins. Joseph was a slave. We're enslaved to our sins. Joseph was in prison. We sang about it just a moment ago. We, we were, we were uh, trapped in a prison, a dungeon of our own making. And God broke in. He freed us. He created a pivot where he lifted us up out of, out of it, right? And he put on us the king's robe, right? We get, we get Christ the king, his righteousness. We, we are robed in it, just like Joseph was robed in the king's garments. He gives us his signet rings. He takes what is ours, Christ. He takes our sin, and he gives us his righteousness and all the blessings that flow forth from that. That's the, that's the pivot, for the Christian, that's the way out of the famine of God's judgment, right? That's the way out. Now, you may think, well, I don't know. That seems kind of like the old gospel story. It seems a little old-fashioned. It seems a little outdated. It seems a little passe. But that's the point. This, when Pharaoh looked to the magicians and the academics, the philosophers of the age, he was looking to the power brokers of the age. And where did his salvation come from? The pit. The, le- the least likely place you would expect to find it. The pit. That's, what God, that's, that's, that's precisely the point. The gospel seems simple. It seems maybe old-fashioned. It seems maybe antique. It seems maybe like a, you know, kind of wipe the dust off of it. We don't need it anymore. But that's the point. 
God delights to demonstrate his power in what appears to the world as foolishness and weakness. So um, this is a picture of the end. It's powerful. And, and you know, anytime we have a clear vision of the end, it has a power to change us here in the present. You know, C.S. Lewis in his chapter on hope talked about how uh, people, um, it, it's easy for us to think that somebody that's so heavenly minded, they're of no earthly good, right? They're sort of head in the clouds and they, they just can't get anything done where real stuff happens. And he says, no, that's actually not true. He says, Christians who did the most for the present world were those who thought most of the next, Right? This has a power, this vision of the end, this picture of the end has the power to animate us in the present. But that's not all. The third point, and we'll close with this. Our suffering will be forgotten amidst God's blessings. Our suffering will be forgotten amidst God's blessings. And this too happens to Joseph. And we see it in the naming of his sons. Look at verse 50. It says, before the year of the famine came, so about seven years after the encounter with Pharaoh, uh, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, the priest of On, bore them to him. And what does Joseph name the, 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 the sons? The firstborn he names Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. And the name of the second he called Ephraim. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. All right? Did you see what happened? He forgot all of his hardship. He forgot the affliction, the bitterness, harboring that bitterness towards his family's house. He forgot it. He forgot the sufferings amidst the blessings. Because the second son, God has made him blessed in the land of his affliction. And this, is, this too is our promise. Paul says in Romans chapter 8 that the sufferings of the present are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed, I like the translation, in us, to us. It's, it's all true. Glory of God, glory in us. There's just glory that we're basking in. And it's so overwhelming. There's such a weight to it that the sufferings of this life are like a drop in the bucket. They're so insignificant. They don't even compare. We forget, just like Joseph, we forget. We forget about them. And God makes us fruitful in the land of our affliction. He's uniting heaven and earth. And here in this land here where we suffer and we struggle, we will be ruling and reigning over a newly transformed new creation. It's the land of our affliction, but it's transformed by the grace of God. You know, I, I have, we have been to too many funerals this year, and we're about to go to another funeral. One family, in, one side of the family in particular, has lost many lives in the last year. One, a 19-year-old um, girl in a car accident. Her grandfather passed away. Just last month, many of you know, someone in, in this community here um, lost a father, struggling, suffering. I know many of you lost family this, this past year. This is, this, is the, this is the real world that we live in. Now, how we get to this, to being like Joseph where we forget it 
and we're so surrounded by blood. I don't know how we get from this point to that point, but you know Joseph wondered. There in the prison, there as a slave, there in the pit that his brothers threw him in. How is this dream going to become true? How is this promise going to be realized? But it, it is. It's fixed. It's the sovereignty of God. And it's, it's good news for God's people. This is the story of the world right here and how it all ends. God, by his grace, will lift those who are low, who seek refuge in him. He will lift them from their lowly state. And he will bring low those who are high, those who, are, who reject him. And he will place those who place their faith in him in a glory so great that the sufferings of the present just evaporate like the morning mist. And here's the thing, this, this great inversion, this incredible pivot of the universe pivots on the work of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for the good news of your gospel. We pray that you would help give us, your spirit would give us, would stir our imaginations and give us a clear vision of the end, of how, where it's all going, so that we might have the kind of urgency that Joseph prescribed as they prepared for a famine, so that we might uh, redeem the time, be fruitful, seek to evangelize, to share this good news with those who may not know it. Give us your grace. Give us your help, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.